This is the Productize Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Brian Castle. Today, you're going to hear my conversation with J.D. Grapham. He is the founder of Simple Focus, among many other products and services and agencies. Simple Focus is his primary agency. It's a design UX shop along with a development arm and a whole line of SaaS applications, SaaS products, most of which he's been able to acquire from others and take on and bring into his operations. So it's been really fascinating to uh, to hear JD's story, how he started it out, how he built up his agency, and then how he, uh, he, how he made the turn. I don't want to say transitioned. <laughs> we talked a bit about that, but he's been able to kind of like add on and expand his portfolio you know, combining both agency work and SaaS products in his portfolio there. So um, really fascinating conversation. We talked about a lot. We really covered a lot of ground. You're going to enjoy this one. Here's my conversation with J.D. Grapham. Okay, so I'm here with J.D. Grapham. J.D., how's it going? Hey, I'm good. How are you doing? Doing good. So uh, yeah, great to have you on. We were just talking offline. I've been really interested in your story. You've taken kind of a unique approach to building out a product business or multiple products, if you will. And of course, going, you know, to really transitioning from the agency background, which you're still running in full force today into a whole portfolio of SaaS products, which is really interesting. I know that a lot of listeners of this show are really looking at making that transition, whether it's going from an agency into a, some sort of productized service into software and other products. Everybody's looking to make that jump at some point, and you've seemed to do it pretty successfully and with kind of like a unique approach. So we're going to get into that. But you know, for now, like today, like before we jump back into your story, how do you kind of describe what you do or what your company does today? Well, so saying that I've transitioned into the agency or from an agency to a product company, you know, as, as you sort of indicated, but just to be clear with everybody, isn't exactly true. So I'm running two agencies and six product companies. The idea I had was that I could do both alongside one another rather than having to transition the agency to a product company. I think that, that a lot of people don't don't uh, like running agencies. I love it, you know, and I love running product companies as well. And I think there are two completely different skill sets and two completely different types of employees. So I like doing both. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you don't really think of it as like a transition. You think of it more like adding on to the portfolio and keeping the agencies running. I mean, the fancy business word for that is diversification. But when people ask what I do, my stock response, if I'm keeping it simple, is that I run a digital agency called Simple Focus. You know, I'll leave it at that. If they're pretty sophisticated and know the business lingo, I'll dive into the fact that Simple Focus is really good at user experience and user interface. And we also operate our own digital products or SaaS companies if they know what SaaS means. And I can get into what that means as well. So that's, that's the gist of it. And then I also run, or uh, actually I don't run, uh, own a portion of another digital agency called Clear Function, which is more on the development side. Got it. So uh, you've kind of got all the tools in your <laughs> available to you from design, user experience, development. So you're perfectly well positioned to take on SaaS companies and maintain them and grow them. Yeah. It's not like I'm, I run an agency and a product company. Actually, I run an agency and several product companies. Oh, and another agency, which is kind of an interesting interesting way to introduce myself. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, are all of these entities literally completely separate, like different people, different offices, different everything? Or is it kind of or is some overlap in terms of people and, and that sort of stuff? Sure. Well, so from my perspective, from JD's personal perspective, 
I call Simple Focus the mothership. Um, Simple Focus is the biggest agency, and Simple Focus employs the most people. And then there is uh, the apps, which are all separate LLCs. But for the most part, they hire Simple Focus to operate them. That's how it happens on a, on the ledger, right? So on, on the books, it, it looks like a client of Simple Focus, basically. Yeah. They'll hire freelancers sometimes, and then sometimes they'll hire Clear Function as well. For example, Clear Function runs a lot of uh, the operations for Sifter, and Simple Focus runs most of the operations for all the other product companies. And uh, Simple Focus and Clear Function, are, are those like totally different entities in, in terms of the two agencies and different people? Yes, completely different entities. I own 100% of Simple Focus, and I own a minority stake in Clear Function. We have different payrolls, different employees, different offices. Clear Function was housed in the Simple Focus office to help it get off the ground, but now it's up to 11 people, has its own salesperson and CEO and its own staff, and they're completely operating independently of Simple Focus. They're doing really great, doing fantastic right now. Really complex, complicated, interesting projects. And then Simple Focus obviously is is doing tons of work for clients. And then um, I'm in the process of taking a couple of the folks from Simple Focus and, and building up, in addition to that, uh, a staff that I'm going to call probably something like Simple Focus Software or something like that. That'll be a separate entity that'll run the products. But right now, the products don't have a payroll. They just hire the agencies to do the work. Got it. And are you guys uh, all remote? you have offices or what? Several offices, not really remote, uh, not that we're not remote friendly. We certainly are because those situations come up. But Simple Focus has an office in Memphis, Tennessee, an office in Portland, Oregon, and an office in Chattanooga, Tennessee, with multiple employees in each, Memphis being the biggest office. And then Clear Function has a separate office in the Memphis area right outside of Memphis in a little suburb called Germantown, where I live, and they have 11 people working out of there. And we've got at Simple Focus, we've got a remote employee and a couple of guys who are on like really extended road trips working from RVs or hotels, have been for a while. A few people on my team are, are I mean, we're all remote, but yeah, a few people are just running all over the place. <laughs> as long as they're productive, man, I'm happy. I like the idea of having people together in an office. It's certainly not a requirement. You know, talent is talent and, uh, you know, you get it where you can find it, but I certainly do like the energy that comes with having people in the same room. And, you know, to a degree, it's a simpler business to run, at least from my perspective. I know there are a bunch of different points of view on it, and I see it both sides of it. But this is the way that we've chosen to go and really having success with it. Very cool. So the product company, I'm sure folks are trying to, you know, get a, like a lay of the land, right, before we jump back into the story. So, I mean, as far as I can tell, correct me if I'm wrong here, like the list of your products right now, we're looking at Sifter, Pulse, Curated, Temper, Ballpark, and Client Flow. Is that? Client Flow, yeah. There, and there are a couple of other startups that I'm not promoting right now because uh, I like to focus on telling the story about the acquisitions and the uh, the profitable businesses, but everybody's always got a side project going, and we've got a couple of different things. We've got a learning management system and a payments platform as well. And in terms of the uh, like the space that you tend to operate in, is are these like all kind of related to client services, like tools for client service companies, basically? Yeah, in the beginning, it sort of happened accidentally, and I noticed this trend developing with the acquisitions. I was like, you know. What it really was, was I wanted to buy products that I could have some synergy, I guess. 
and uh, maybe one day do some cross promotion and have some success with that. And it sort of turned into this organically. They're what I call for us, by us apps. So, you know, creative agencies like mine, technical digital agencies like mine seem to be a great fit for products like Ballpark and Sifter and even Pulse, which is cash flow management for small businesses as well on the business side. And I mean, curated is going to be for those folks that want to kind of position themselves and share content and grow an audience. And it, it all sort of works that way. Yeah. Pro services, creative industry, small businesses. Nice. All right, so let's uh, let's kind of go back and figure out how you got here. How do, how do you get to a point where you're, you're running, you know, three different offices, teams all over the place, a whole portfolio of products, different agencies? I mean, where does this all begin? Where did you start out? What were you doing before all this? Yeah, uh, well, if I go all the way back to the beginning, I was in, really into creative writing in high school, and that led to being the editor of a literary magazine, which led to learning graphic design. So the literary magazine wasn't ugly. That led to an internship at the college I was going to in the communications department, which led to a summer job doing graphic design, which led to, oh, how do I click around in Dreamweaver and sort of make a website, which led to taking a job as a web designer for Hilton Hotels. And then realizing that I didn't actually know what I was doing. I was just clicking in Dreamweaver and going to some training and learning how to code CSS. The next thing you knew, I picked it up pretty quickly and wrote a book called CSS for Print Designers, which got published by a real publisher and was sold in real bookstores and everything. And that was fun. Uh, what year was that with the book? 2011. Okay. So that's actually pretty far along in terms of the web industry, right? So Yeah, it was. So there was this interesting inflection point where... Traditional advertising agencies had armies of designers who didn't know anything about making websites. And so that was at the point when they sort of were like, ah, we need to teach this to our designers how to code CSS so that we don't have to outsource everything that needs to get coded. And people started realizing, gosh, you know, CSS is just a medium for design. And so it was a really timely book, CSS for Print Designers. And I went on a speaking tour and started teaching workshops. Every last one of them sold out. It was quite the whirlwind. That was quite the adventure. But that was um, that was after 2009, which was the year that I started my agency. Um, I had been doing moonlighting and freelancing while I was at Hilton. And the numbers started adding up. And I realized that it made more financial sense, even though I was really well paid as a web designer working on Hilton's e-commerce to, uh, to sort of quit that job as wonderful of an experience as it was, as much as I respected and enjoyed everybody that I worked with. It was still kind of a difficult decision to sort of leave that great job that I had, but it just made financial sense to quit, start my own company. I believed in myself. My wife believed in me, pulled the trigger. And after three years of being at Hilton, I quit and started working out of the spare bedroom in my house. And uh, getting to that point was a completely separate story from getting to the point where I'm at today. Well, I'm just curious at that time. So like when you left your job at Hilton, you know, you mentioned about starting your own company, starting an agency. Were you thinking about going off on your own and becoming a freelancer or from day one, this is going to be an agency. We're going to build a team. We're going to really grow this out. Because I kind of did that. Like I worked at an agency and then I became a freelancer. It was only in the years that followed that I was like, maybe I should start hiring people. So I always thought of myself as a freelancer while I had a full-time job. And I decided that if I was going to quit my job, I wasn't going to be a freelancer. I had always romanticized the idea of being a business owner. And it was sort of my calling. I wanted to hire people. And so I was very deliberate about branding my new business as not JD, but an agency. And so 
that was the direction I took. I always wanted to grow an agency from the beginning. Yeah. Very nice. Talk to me a bit about how you started to grow that up, right? So the first couple of years building up your own agency, what were kind of the, the early turning points there? Well, this was before I had done knew anything about products, right? So we're just thinking like traditional agency at this point. I had only worked at an agency for about 90 days and that job didn't work out and it wasn't a great experience for me. So I didn't know a ton about the business of running an agency and I didn't have a business degree, so I didn't know much about business. I just sort of followed my gut and was able to sort of network and meet people and ask everybody in town if they wanted to go to lunch and, you know, go Dutch. And I learned pretty quickly the best way to get something is not to ask for it directly. You know, I was just there to meet people and get to know people and be known and uh, share my passion for the industry and hear from others about their passion for the industry. And the next thing you know, they would call me six months later and say, hey, you want to do our website? So that was a big part of it was just good old fashioned. So like very much local networking. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I didn't have a reputation nationally or anything like that. At the time, nobody knew who I was. I was just like, you know, I would show up at a networking event and be like, hey, I'm JD. Nice to meet you. Do you need a website? You know? And, then, you know, we could get that laugh, right? Oh, yeah. And then one in three times, like, the answer was actually yes. So my motion detector will turn the light off. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah your, your light just shut off there, yeah. But, you know, I come from a background as a web designer, too. And for so many years, and not anymore today, by design, like I used to tell people, oh, like, what do you do? Like, I'm a web designer. Oh, and then that would almost like, I feel like more than 50% of the time would start like, oh, you you make websites? I think I need a website or like my brother needs a website. And like, that was really good early on. But then as the years went on, I was like, I don't want to tell people I do web design because I don't want to get into that conversation. (laughs) Like, you know, (laughs) I still still ask everybody, do you need a website? (laughs) Because everybody does kind of need a website. You know, they'll laugh and they'll say, oh, no, actually, yeah, we kind of do. Our website's pretty terrible. Yep. Everybody's website is terrible. Um, Where did the book fit into Like, were you already running the agency when you came out with the book? Well, when I was still at Hilton, I started doing these workshops. There was this organization, or there is this organization called AIGA that I was on the board in Memphis. And we planned a little little workshop called Two-Hour CSS. Because I convinced everybody on the board that like, hey, guys, coding CSS is super simple. I can teach you in like two hours. And they were like, we're going to call this guy's bluff and promote an event called Learn CSS in Two Hours. And it worked. Like people were like coding CSS at the end of the workshop by hand. So I rebranded it to CSS for print designers and kept getting asked to do these workshops in other cities. And they kept selling out. And then finally, a Somebody connected me with a publisher who was interested, Peach Pit Press, and we ran with it from there. And I kept doing the workshops while I wrote the book. Huh. So the book was kind of like a standalone success, or do you think that that drove more energy into your agency stuff, like more clients, leads, recognition? It was more of a separate project. I always wanted it to sort of support the brand of the agency and help build our reputation. And it didn't do it directly, but it did become one of the best business cards you could have, right? hey, I run an agency and we wrote a book on coding CSS. So it certainly helped in that regard and got a couple of conversations going. I know it did lead, the workshops did lead directly to one big customer of ours, but the rest was just sort of reputation. And it's just the slow, steady churning of you know content that uh, helps you build your reputation over time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you mentioned that you enjoy running agencies even through today, but I'm curious, like, whether it's early on or throughout these years, like, 
what do you think were some of the challenges that you faced owning, growing, scaling up a, an agency? Mm. Early on, it was a lot of confidence challenges. Um, I would encounter something difficult and wouldn't have the confidence to go ahead and make the decision that made the most sense to me because I was like, oh, I got a chip on my shoulder because I don't have a business degree. You know, I can't make decisions like this. And then I kept getting advice from people that, hey, it's just more common sense than you think. And I eventually embraced that. And that's what it became. The other's always been cash flow, you know, because agencies can, um, you know, have a good run and put a bunch of money away. But if you don't hold on to it and then the slow season comes, it's kind of scary. Uh, you know, you don't want to spend the money. So you're always afraid to invest. And overcoming that was a separate challenge altogether which kind of is what led to me getting involved in the idea of running a product company because the cash flow steadiness is a big benefit to running a, a SaaS product. We're going to dive into that, but I'm curious about that because I know I've seen it myself. I know other agencies deal with that all the time, the cash flow issues, and you can have huge months and then things dry up if you're not getting new clients and that sort of thing, especially if you're not doing like recurring retainer type services and more project-based Um Aside from getting into owning products, was there a breakthrough before that where you kind of changed your mindset or changed your model somehow to make cash flow easier to manage or open you up to investing into new stuff more so than you were early on? Well, if I'm being a little bit more specific, we didn't really have cash flow problems in those early days. It's just that I knew eventually we might. You know, when I was trying to be a responsible business owner in the early days, the real problems that we faced was as I grew a team was, okay, we're constantly focused on the quality of our delivery and we're constantly stressing over that. And when the fact of the matter was, we're really good at web design, we're really good at UI and UX and the work product the agency was always solid and always has been solid, even though it's where we spend all of our energy, like running around like our heads on fire, worrying about our, the quality of our product. When the, you know, that's actually not our problem. The problem was always maybe targeting the right kind of customers and figuring out how to handle the business development side of things. So rather than going after a certain type of customer that we wanted to pursue, we would always sit back and let the networking that I did in the early days and the customers that we had had sort of word of mouth refer us, which is fantastic. We enjoy the work. But then there were times that we're like working on stuff that we're like, okay, this is cool and all, but I can't, I'm not super passionate about it. And that's where we needed to be focused. But I thought we needed to be focused on the quality, which actually led to our customers getting way better quality design and advice and delivery at the end of the day than they were used to or expected. And so I, that was one of the real struggles more than cash flow in the early days. But then, um, you know, I was like, gosh, you know, we need to focus on cash flow because at some point it's not going to be this easy. We're not going to always, you know, we're not always going to have six months of work lined up in front of us. Yeah, I guess I don't necessarily mean like cash flow issues, but more like you said, like the looking ahead and everybody wants to either grow their business in some way, grow their product line, invest in a new startup, go buy a startup or go buy a product. Like in order to be able to invest in that confidently and you want to self-fund it, then you have to see months ahead of positive cash flow. And that can be a real challenge in the client services. So I guess it like as the agencies grew and as you start to focus more on, on sales funnels rather than just tweaking the, the actual quality of work. So I guess that's why I brought that up is because my eye wasn't on the ball, right? We were focused on something that really wasn't strategic for the business and wasn't a problem for the business. 
of sort of like an artist who doesn't understand the value of their own work. They're just all about the art, man, you know, and um, they're not charging the right prices and they're not thinking about it as commercially and maybe an artist shouldn't, but certainly we should be. And so when I finally did start to focus on that is when I started having these these um, conversations with a couple of guys who had this product and it was called Pulse and they would never really share too much with me about it other than, you know, hey, this is profitable and it's actually going to cost real money. It's not something you can buy for a couple thousand dollars. I'd try and convince them, like, hey, I actually have a legitimate business here. And it was like four people at the time. And the next time we had the conversation, I had six people on staff. And then finally, they took me seriously and were like ready to engage and have a real conversation and didn't think I was going to waste their time when I came to them. And they were like, so how's business? And I was like, man, we just hired our 10th person about to hire our 11th. And they were like doing some math in their heads and thinking, oh, okay, well, this, this business that JD's got going must be making some money. So let's share a little bit about this product, Pulse. And uh, that's how the conversation got started eventually after like three years of trying to get them to share a little bit more. I didn't know anything about SaaS. I didn't even know the phrase SaaS. All I knew was that years and years ago, Basecamp turned into a product company and current revenue is this magical thing that stabilizes cash flow. And I wanted one of those. And I had tried to build a product unsuccessfully and was very frustrated by the fact that wasn't able to focus on the product and execute on it as well as I knew that, that we could at Simple Focus. And we built a great product, but couldn't get customers. And so I was like, well, I could just spend some money instead of spending time and buy a product that has customers. And voila, it just magically happened. So what was that, uh, if you don't mind sharing it, what, what was that first product that in terms of the timeline, like you guys tried to build your own first and then ran into some frustrations with that. And then it was the idea of acquiring a, a SaaS as a viable way forward. Exactly. So the product we tried to build was projectlist.com. And it's a great little product. It serves a very simple purpose. And it was my purpose. It was this little thing that I wanted to be just a certain way because it's what I needed. And then we weren't able to actually build it efficiently, two years to build. And then once it was built, we never really finished it. And then anytime somebody would try and sign up, it wasn't quite finished. And so it wasn't very sticky. And then we never focused on or were able to focus on, um, you know, building an audience and getting awareness out. And so it just failed because we were trying to squeeze it into our spare cycle. And then pulseapp.com was the product that I did end up buying. Now, Interestingly, the way they were able to get that product going was they stopped their agency for an entire month and blogged about the experience on a website called OneMonthApp.com, which doesn't resolve anymore, so they don't bother trying. But they said, you know, we're going to stop taking agency work. These guys were from Memphis, you know, where I'm from, and uh, stop taking agency work and show the world that we know how to build products. Maybe we can get some awareness about our little agency and start building more products rather than coding websites or ad agencies, and which was what, how they were making a living before. So they had to turn off their agency completely to focus on it, and boy, they did. And the blog was really a, a really smart way to build awareness. They blogged about everything from the name to the business model to the tech stack to the UI choices to what it's like. Uh, running, a, uh, trying to figure out what sort of product to build to running the product. And it was a, a pretty popular uh, little RSS feed that, that they built up and they got on the front page of Big. And, yeah. And Pulse is a tool for other agencies who are probably thinking about doing that sort of jump. And so they would be interested in that sort of content. 
Exactly. And, and it's not really an agency specific tool, but it is a cash flow management app. But because of that, even to this day, we have a really big, high level of awareness and a big percentage of our customers who are creative pro services agencies like ours to this day, you know, just because of that market that, that we built, some, that they built some awareness in. So their experiment there with the one month off and blocking about it, that actually worked. It wasn't just about a, a PR thing for the agency. Pulse itself actually gained traction from it. It worked for the agency and it, and they got a product out of it. You know, three years later, they had something that was generating revenue and that they were able to sell and make a good return on. So are you able to share any sort of like numbers on that very first acquisition? I guess that was Pulse in terms of how well that was doing. Yeah, so it's um, we passed a milestone this month where Pulse is now three times the size it was when I bought it, which has been a fantastic result for me. I love the product. I think it's fantastic. When we got it, it had a couple hundred customers. Now we've got 600 customers. These customers stick with us forever. And uh, we went through a big pricing overhaul recently, and everybody still is like, you know, this product's worth it. We love it. I couldn't run my business without it. And Pulse has just been one of those products that when somebody signs up for it and they get it, they get it. And that's been the easiest part about it is that I found accidentally a really good buy in something that basically sells itself. It's a great product, you know. And because of Simple Focus' specialty, we've been able to make it better over the years, make it faster, make it easier to use. And people are sticking with us longer even and running bigger companies on it. It's It's been kind of crazy because when I bought it, my best case scenario was if I could run this for three or four years and have it not shrink, that's like a resounding success because that means I got my money back and maybe doubled my money over a few years as it is now. It's just its own thing with its own life. I definitely want to dig into like what happens after you bought that SaaS and the other ones, like how you've been able to operate them and grow them. But I know that there are a lot of people thinking about this idea, or I feel like the idea of acquiring a SaaS or acquiring a product is kind of like an afterthought, or a lot of people just don't even consider it. They think like, well, we have to build our own, right? So can you talk a bit about that? Like, how did you actually look at that as like a viable option? And how did you go about funding that very first acquisition and, and all that? Well, so when I was in high school, I mentioned being in really into creative writing. And so I was in this AP English class. And there was a student who was a year older than us who took the ACT, which is a standardized test for high school kids to get into college, if anybody's listening internationally or doesn't know what ACT is. And she scored a perfect 36. And she was the first person in our school to score a perfect on the ACT ever in the history of the school. And then all of a sudden, people looked up and said, wait, she just sits over there. She got a perfect. Maybe I could get a perfect. You know, maybe I could get a perfect. And all of a sudden, when you're around someone who says, you know what, you can do that. Look, let me show you, you know, and then they do something all of a sudden, like your self-limitation sort of dissolves away. Right. So similarly to that, I've had people ask me this question, like, oh, my God, like, how did you do it? And I'm like, well, you can do it, too. And I've had so many people come back to me and say, you know, because I heard your story, I went out and did it. And it's like, that's such a simple thing. If they hadn't heard my story, they wouldn't have done it. So I'm glad you asked that question. It's, it's very simple. Okay. So when I was talking to the guys that owned Pulse about why they were having so much trouble selling it, he said something very interesting to me, Stephen did, uh, Stephen Rainey, who was one of the co-founders. He said, it's too expensive for somebody who would want to run it, but not, not big enough for anybody who can afford it. 
In other words, if there's a company that has the cash to buy it for what it's worth, they don't want that additional revenue. It's just not enough revenue to be worth it. So for an established business, it's just not big enough, right? But for the regular guy on the street, it's too big. And so there was really no market for this size of an app. And this was five or six years ago. And so that's changed a little bit. There's a little bit more awareness out there that you can buy small SaaS apps and that there are funding mechanisms in place to help you do that. Me, I didn't have any guidance. I was doing this for the first time on my own using my gut. I didn't have a business degree. I didn't have relationships with banks or anything like that. So I called up a friend from high school whose family ran a bank. And I said, so, hey, uh, how would you do this? You know, the price that I was trying to come up with was $88,000. And I talked to my wife about savings and whether we could tap into that and and ultimately decided to split and use some cash and use a bank loan for the rest. Now, let me tell you, going to a small town bank in North Louisiana in Hill Country where you grew up and saying, hey, Paul, Paul, we want to buy an app. A what? <laughs> doesn't go over so well. Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll loan you $60,000 to buy a Z71 pickup truck, but apps, man, that's risky, you know? <laughs> and so it took some convincing. And fortunately, my high school buddy was very forward thinking and was very convincing with his, you know, his family. And, and they took a, a chance on me. And man, it's been a, it's been a great relationship with that little town, the little small town bank in Louisiana. And my high school friend has turned into a business partner. And, it's been one of the best decisions in my life to go to a small town bank and get a little loan to make this first acquisition. And so I've done that a couple of different times. And now that I've had some success with it and I'm reinvesting the cash flow from the businesses, I'm able to um, use some sort of combination of cash and debt financing to make any of them happen at pretty much any size that I want to at this point. Um, you know, I'm not doing multi-million dollar transactions or anything. You know, if I was, I'd have, probably have to get a little bit more sophisticated than that. But to get a six or seven percent loan on a SaaS app is like a no-brainer for me. Like all you got to do is get a relationship with a, a banker and have some stability and be a good fiduciary. Uh, you can start small and buy a small app and grow it and show success, and then with that relationship, you can just take it from there. And then, kind of doing the math out from you know the investment into buying it and sustaining it. Like, are you looking at you know, like what's the monthly revenue and how long does it take to pay off? And like, what are the things to look for in the app? Obviously, you don't want to get into something that's declining, right? Like, are there certain things to like reduce that risk that you look for? Well, declining is not the end of the world in SaaS because it's a long, slow decline. So there's some risk mitigation right there because you lose your customers that uh, if you've got enough customers, at least you lose them as a, as a percentage of your total number of customers rather than, you know, in three months, they're all gone. You know, and that percentage is usually pretty small. So you would have a long, slow slope to death. And so I thought about that. And man, these days I talk about SaaS apps in a pretty sophisticated manner. So I talk about buying and selling at multiples of revenue and ARR and MRR. And I start throwing around these phrases. But when I was looking at Pulse, here's how I said it. Gosh, here's something that these guys haven't really spent any serious time on in three years. And basically, they get 10 customers every month. They lose 10 customers every month. It stayed flat as a business for the last three years, doing not the best job with email support. They're not doing any sales. They're not spending any money on marketing. It'd be pretty hard for me to screw that up, right? I was like, so if I can buy it for you know one and a half times revenue, then I could pay it back in less than two years, right? And I was only borrowing a percentage. So some of it was cash. Some of it was my own money. And some of it was debt financing. And so... 
I just carved out a big chunk of that revenue every month to service debt and pay myself back. And then I looked up one day and instead of, you know, $1,000 a month going into a checking account, it was all of a sudden $8,000 a month because I was done servicing the debt and I owned it outright. And boy, that was a joyous occasion. That felt nice. And so now had a nice dinner with the wife to celebrate. You know, it helps so much to just simplify it, right? You know, get around all, all the jargon and all the industry, all the complexity and, and all the everything. Obviously, you want to look at that stuff. You want to look at the metrics. You want to, you know, figure it out. But at the end of the day, it's just the more that you can take away, the, you know, the clearer you can make the view there. Well, I didn't have to simplify it. I, you know, I had a pretty simplistic view of it because I was naive and didn't know. But I was using, like I said common sense because I, I kept hearing over and over again it's more common sense than you think and i've always been good with common sense and when you look at this deal and you look at it and you realize that that this just makes common sense you're you're like okay well let's do it this should probably work yeah <laughs> as you go through that one and the subsequent products that you've picked up how does that typically work like are you i guess in that particular one they they were just looking to offload it but like do you ever bring on people who worked on the product or the co-founders or the any of their teams along with the product? Or is it always just the asset itself and then your team is taken on to maintain it? You know, to date, I haven't done that. Uh, the acquisitions I've completed have been small enough. And they're done with technical founders who are ready for the next thing. You know, with Pulse, there was one guy who wanted to go in the ministry full time and another guy who had, you know, a good paying development job for a startup. And these two guys, it just wasn't the headache of running this app wasn't worth the little bit of cash they cleared each month because they had to split it. And so they were ready to sort of, you know, uh, cash out and get a, a lump sum payment. And so that was their reasoning. And then uh, the next one I bought was Ballpark. And one of the main reasons Andrew and MetaLab wanted to sell Ballpark was because their project management app, Flow, was doing so gangbusters that Ballpark wasn't really uh, the size that they needed it to be and they were looking to focus on flow and their agency and so i was able to buy it from them because they were ready for the next thing is there like a typical like routine that you go through from the obviously there's the sale and the due diligence and the contract but then once it closes from there on out like do you have a what's due diligence right (laughs) (laughs) yeah so the typical flow is uh, i'm really more interested in knowing the seller's motivations for selling because my motivations for buying are to buy stable, secure apps rather than high growth, high return type stuff. And that's sort of what I'm looking for. And so the motivations matter to me. Like I'm not, I'm not looking to buy something from somebody who just wants to offload it. I want to buy something from somebody who wants to take care of it, who wants it taken care of, wants to make sure the customer's well taken care of. I buy stuff from people who don't want to sell it to a roll-up, right? So if somebody's like, you know, I just really don't want to sell my customers. I want to sell the product, and I want the product to be well taken care of. Then that's who you sell to. You sell to a guy like me. Um, if you're looking for the other thing, you know, it, it could probably be a little bit more money for you, but it's going to take 12 months, and it's going to be complicated, and they're liable to walk away with, you know, the day before closing. You know, with me, I'm able to, like, look at it, have an honest conversation, do a little bit of background on you, make sure you're reputable and and you're not playing me and you're telling the truth and, and you're a good person, you got a good reputation and, and you put a lot uh, of trust in someone like that because, you know, hey, I know this guy, you know this guy and we're going to do a deal here. And so I'm able to do a deal pretty quickly in four or five weeks and pay all cash up front rather than some sort of tricky like financial mechanism. I don't even do escrow. 
right? I'm like, okay, well, give me the passwords and I'll send you some money and we'll kind of do it at the same time. <laughs> you know? Because there's just so much trust. It's, it's really about the personal relationship. You don't do any sort of like cash out, like, you know, like over time or like hitting like revenue targets, that kind of stuff. No, um, the people that do that are, are paying a little bit more money, right? But they're using your own revenue to pay you back. So my angle is like, all right, I'm going to buy this from you. It's going to be all cash up front. And you'll give me a little bit of discount because you get it all, all at once. You know, I like to keep this transaction super simple. Like these folks that I'm buying from, they don't want to run the product anymore. They just want to make sure that it's well taken care of. And that they get their money. And I don't want this money anymore. I just want the product. And so if you give me the password, I'll give you the money. It's very simple. Easy enough. You know, and, and take care of your customers. I'll take care of your product. I'll keep the dream alive. That's my promise to you, you know. That's sort of my angle on it is just trying to keep my word. Yeah, I like it. What are some of the uh, first steps, like operationally? I know that you, you like to keep things running as they were for a while and not, and just don't break it. Right. But I'm logistically between your teams and taking on customer support, like all of a sudden you're responsible for all support starting from this date forward. Like how does you and your team get up to speed on the training and getting developers on it and that kind of stuff? Yeah. So I've actually got a great little blog post that I wrote about this, maybe put it in the show notes. There's like these things that I look for. One is just having customer support logs that we can read through. And I'm reading through those before we even consummate the transaction so that I can get and my team can get sort of familiar with the issues that you have and the answers to those emails that you get when there's when there's glitches or whatever. But that way we're able to respond quickly and give the good customer support experience. Um, but generally speaking, I'm buying apps that are really simple to operate technically. They're simple CRUD apps. They all have a similar tech stack. And here's the cool thing. Remember, like, I run an agency and my people run an agency. And so it's just like taking on a new client. Hey, give us the passwords. We'll read the code base, get familiar with it, and then like make a little change and see if anything breaks. <laughs> you know, there's always like a there's always like a Slack channel that lights up with emojis whenever we do our first push. Like, we, you know, we did our first push. It's it's great. You know, so it, it's just like a date format or a little drop down tweak or a CSS adjustment or some small little first push just so that we can test out the workflow. I'm not a developer myself, so I don't even sit in on those meetings anymore. There goes the light again. Well, I can see how, like, obviously you have the agencies and the people available to work on it, but I can see how it's actually very similar to taking on a, a new client, especially for a development shop, taking on a new client who you're brought in to start maintaining something that exists from before. Like, there's always that process of, you know, load in the code base, get into it and access it and that kind of stuff. So everybody always gets hung up on that. They're like, well, gosh... What's it like running six different apps? That must be crazy. Like, how do you take them over? And all this has never been an issue. We don't pick out technically complicated apps. We keep a similar tech stack. We stay in a comfort zone. And then we make sure that we're talking directly to the people that built the code base and getting them to run through it with us. And, and frankly, the seller or the founder who's selling it to us is able to do that in a couple of hours and 10 emails, you know? It's not a really big burden because we can read code, <laughs> you know, I mean, we know how software works. And so we just get familiar with how your software works and we're not buying overly complicated software. So we're able to support it pretty quickly. I get how your teams are able to take on a, an, another app and another app added to the list, just like a client list in terms of maintaining the development, the code, the design, the UX. How about there's customer support and then there's marketing. But for customer support and, and onboarding new customers and dealing with support issues, 
I know that you're bringing on, you know, pretty simple apps and simple to operate, simple to use, simple to support, but they start to add up. I mean, you guys have six plus products on your portfolio here. Like, do you have a dedicated support team and are those people spread across a bunch of products or how does that operate? Yeah. So one guy pretty much triages all the incoming support requests. For all the products. Yeah. Except for one. Sifter has a different person. But yeah, that's pretty simple. So like you think about all the things a human being can do, all the things you personally know about. Maybe you know about carpentry and maybe you know about beer making and maybe you know a little bit about fashion and, and a little bit about plumbing and electrical and about how to make your wife happy and you know about how to raise a kid and change a diaper and fix a car and change your oil. You think all these things you know, right? You don't, you don't forget them, right? And so it's just a matter of, of like context switching. So, you know, you go through the sifter uh, or you go through the curated support tickets and then you run through the temper support tickets and then you run through the ballpark support tickets and then, oh my God, something's on fire. So let's go fix that. And then if something gets a little too complicated for you, you need to escalate it to a developer. You just hit up the developer that knows the most about that product and you ask if they can help. Yep. Easy enough. It's actually a lot less complicated than you would think. Now, where it becomes challenging is when there's just not enough hours in the day, right? And so then you start adding people. And hopefully there's the revenue to support that, right? And so that's the objective at the end of the day for me is just to have a stable business that can employ people and help people make livings. Very nice. And so, yeah, how about on the marketing side, you know, or I guess that also plays into the product side. Like, what are the things that you're looking to do in the first year, two years of owning a, an app, whether that's about product, pricing, how you're marketing it, how you're growing it off the baseline when you took it on? So the first couple of years, and especially in the beginning, it's really about getting to know the customers and the product, taking our time, slow and steady, not making any big changes, interviewing customers, talking to customers, surveying customers, making incremental product enhancements, nothing big and dramatic. After a couple of years, the debt's been serviced. You know the product, you know the customers, you can start taking chances on the product, right? And then once you start deciding whether or not the product is where you want it to be or whether you want to push it in a new direction, then you start thinking about, okay, well, how am I going to promote this? And that last piece, the marketing piece, is where the fun's happening for me right now because simple focus and clear function are product companies. One's UI UX, one's development. Neither one of them have a heritage of being an ad agency or a strictly marketing company. Like we're, we're all about user experience and clear communication and brand development. Not so much unlike Facebook ad buys, you know. Uh, so we're beginning to grow that side of the business, beginning to think about things like, you know, the, uh, the, the buzzword du jour, such as content marketing and whatnot in the marketing space. And we're going to build up that discipline in the coming year or two. Uh, so that's where the focus is going to be. And I think it naturally happens that way. And it's fortunate for me because it's given us time to learn the product. It's given us time to learn the customers and decide strategically what direction we want to go that way. We're doing it right. Like we're setting the product up and then we're promoting it rather than promoting something that's maybe not quite there. Right. And Fortunately, everything's kind of been there. It's just been a matter of getting comfortable with it and, and making good business sense and waiting until, you know, the financial side of the business can support that kind of investment. Yeah. How are you thinking about like growing that competency into the company? Like, are you, are you hiring individual people to come in and start playing around with Facebook ads or content and funnels and that kind of stuff or looking to outsource or looking to acquire a, like a, a marketing agency or, you know? I'll outsource a little bit, but yeah, the biggest investment I've ever made in Simple Focus has always been on the people. So I get smart people in, motivated people, and I let them learn the things that they're passionate about learning. So there's this one guy, Calvin Morris, and another woman named Caitlin Woodward who've been 
with me for a long time, and they've really grown a lot in development and product management. And so Calvin's really focused on growing as a product manager. And a big part of that is understanding positioning and marketing and maybe not necessarily doing it, but he's teaching himself all these things, right? And so that's the biggest investment is in making sure that the people who are here are where you're, you're putting your money where your mouth is. Um, occasionally, we'll, um, we'll bring in freelancers who have a specialty. Uh, when the revenue supports it, you know, we'll be growing by adding more developers and adding marketing people and bringing that experience in and making it part of the team. Because at a certain point, we're going to reach a threshold where we have to bring in someone from the outside who knows digital marketing for SaaS, right? And has proven experience and success. But right now, we're just using common sense and teaching ourselves as we go. Love it. Well, uh, you know, really, really exciting story. I, I can't wait to just kind of tune in and see what happens in the next couple of years as you keep growing this empire of uh, SaaS products over there. Well, thank you. I'm excited to see where we're going to be in a couple of years, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, well, JD, I mean, where can folks uh, find you and reach out to you? What's the best way? Uh, you could go to simplefocus.com. Um, there's a contact form there if you're looking for some help with your own product. Uh, you can hit me up on Twitter. It's just JD Grapple. Either one of those, you'll get to me at some point. And I'm always happy to chat on direct message on Twitter, hop on a phone call, video chat with anybody that's got any questions about this. I'm, I'm an open book, man. Awesome. Well, uh, yeah, we'll get all that linked up in the show notes. JD, thanks for doing this. Thanks so much. Hey, before you go, did you know that in my newsletter list, there's a select group of folks who receive what I call my Friday notes emails. That's where I share some behind the scenes updates about the businesses that I'm working on in real time, some personal updates and some tips. They're kind of a change of pace from the other stuff that I usually send out. And so my longtime subscribers really enjoy these, these emails and I get a lot of feedback on them. Um, but if you're not getting them yet, you can actually get my next one by going to castjam.com slash Friday notes. That's Friday dash notes. I'll connect with you soon. Thanks for tuning in today. Yeah.